Last night in East Lansing, thousands of students showed up to a vigil remembering the students shot and killed this week in the heart of Michigan State's campus. Being with you all here right now heals me more than you could ever imagine. I cannot tell you how we go forward, but I will tell you that Spartans will heal together. Forever and always, go green. Few among us could say that we know, at this point, the way forward after another deadly mass shooting. But legislative leaders at the state capitol say they know they need to do something to try to prevent another deadly massacre. It is upon us, specifically us, here in this room, down the hall, us, to address this horrible problem. And I'm not talking about thoughts and prayers, and not that thoughts and prayers are bad, never hurts, but we need action now. Today, we're zooming out. We'll try to piece together the law that allowed for someone with a prior gun conviction to legally own another gun. And we'll hear from a public health researcher about why strong policies alone aren't enough. This is Stateside. I'm Laura Weber Davis, in for April Bear. As more information comes out about the suspect, Anthony McRae, so too are there a slew of questions around gun laws. McRae had a gun-related conviction in 2019. So in 2019, a Lansing police officer encountered him late at night outside of business. There had supposedly been burglaries in the area at this time, and the police officer was kind of just making sure nothing improper was happening. He walked up to McRae and asked McRae what was going on. And eventually the officer asked him if he had a weapon on him. And McRae said to the officer that he did have a weapon on him. He had a gun on him. And then McRae acknowledged that he did not have a permit to carry that weapon concealed as he was doing. That led to his arrest and a charge of concealed carry of a weapon without a license. That's Detroit News reporter Craig Mauger. Prosecutors ended up negotiating a felony charge down to a misdemeanor for McRae. The key difference here and the difference that I think people probably should be focusing on in this debate is the felony charge would have prevented McRae from owning a gun legally for at least three years after his probation ended. So at this point, he would not have been able to still legally purchase or own a gun if he had been convicted of the felony. The misdemeanor charge allowed him, even though it was a gun-related crime, it allowed him to go out and purchase a gun and possess a gun as soon as his probation was over. So the the legal debate over how long it would, the probationary period for owning a gun and and how that might be extended or viewed or changed. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen that debate in the current package of things discussed by lawmakers. Is that true or is that now part of the, the, the overall package that is being discussed by lawmakers? That, that has not been part of the legislation that Democrats have focused on in recent year, years or this year. However, Attorney General Dana Nessel, who's probably one of the the you know state elected officials who understands this better than anyone because she's the state's top law enforcement official, said yesterday that she believes that he should not that the law should be changed 
so that people like McRae cannot own guns so quickly after getting off probation or serving their punishment for a gun related crime. She told myself and a number of other reporters that in an interview yesterday. So it's definitely something she's looked at. A number of Democrats have also flagged to me, and this is something that I think should also be mentioned, that there are some Republicans in the legislature, maybe some of the same that are criticizing how McRae's case was handled, who have pushed so-called constitutional carry bills that would give everyone the right uh, constitutionally to carry weapons, protect the rights of gun owners to carry weapons. And McRae's case would have looked a lot different if that had been in place when his situation played out in 2019. Is there anything that the attorney general's office could do from from her standpoint or do any changes need to really come from the legislature? I think to institute something as what she's talked about across the state, it would take a legislative change. It would take some type of policy that says, and there are a lot of policies like this when you start reading the state's gun laws, which make them very difficult to to write about. And even for people to decipher what is legal and illegal, you can tie certain provisions of the law to individuals who have been convicted of certain crimes. Like McRae, for instance, because of the crime that he did plead guilty to, even though it was a misdemeanor, he is not allowed to have a concealed carry permit in Michigan for a certain number of years after uh, he is convicted of that crime because it is a crime that involves a gun. It could be possible that the legislature says, well, now the people that have been convicted of this particular list of crimes, maybe crimes involving violence, crimes involving uh, gun, gun violations, This group of people cannot go back and purchase another gun until a couple years after their probation ends. I mean, something like that could be put into state law pretty easily. I mean, there were Republicans saying yesterday on social media that they would challenge the constitutionality of any measure like that. And that would have to be something that played out in the courts. But the legislature could definitely at least attempt to do it. Craig, I'm sure that um, that Republican leaders and Republican lawmakers see that this train is headed down the track and there's probably not a whole lot that they can do to stop Democrats or change Democrats' minds or maybe even alter the legislation that is pushed through. But have they been vocal about what they would like to see or or what they would like to not see happen? We've heard a couple of comments today on the Senate floor. There were a series of speeches given by both Democrats and Republicans about what happened to MSU. Two Republicans gave addresses. And one of them, Mike Weber, who's from Oakland County, said that he thought the legislature needed to take a holistic approach and try to look at this in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, He didn't specify what that meant, but that was his comment. Another senator, Jim Runstead, who's a conservative, one of the more outspoken members of the Republican caucus in the Senate, was talking about uh, looking at changing laws. But he also referred to this McRae incident from 2019 and said that people need to use current laws to their full extent. And he indicated under his belief that if that had been done with McRae's situation, maybe he wouldn't have been able to get this firearm that he had, uh, the two firearms that he had and used at Michigan State. The, those have been the comments from Republicans so far. They're in a very difficult position uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, there's a huge 
public pressure for action. I mean, there are going to be demonstrate demonstrations and protests at the Capitol for the next couple of months. We saw a very large one yesterday. And for another reason that there is intense public pressure is the public polling on this issue is not with the Republicans. I mean, there was a poll that the Glengariff group did in December that showed 75% a 90% of people support background checks and red flag laws uh, like the Democrats have proposed. I mean, the Democrats have put the Republicans in a difficult spot because they are advancing these gun reforms that are most popular with the public to start this discussion. So the Republicans are going to have to decide what the alternative is for them. Is it to try to change these in a way that they can maybe get on board with and limit their impact in some way. There are Republicans who have supported these types of measures in the past. That's possible. Do they try to come up with their own alternatives? Uh, we've heard Republicans talk a lot about mental health in the past. Maybe that's what they do. But they it's going to be fascinating to watch their actions in the coming months. When we're talking about red flag laws and the intersection with uh, mental health, you know, Numerous reports have come out about uh, quite an in you know an unstable livelihood that this that the shooter was living. Um, I don't think that it carried an official diagnosis that I've seen, but um, somebody who's clearly very unwell and very unhappy. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that that's going to rise to the level of triggering any sort of red flag law either. Is that true? I mean, from what. I have heard from law enforcement today in their press conference and what we've been able to obtain through our reporting of talking to his father and talking to friends and neighbors who live nearby. Uh, it doesn't seem like there was anything that would have risen to the point of either law enforcement or a judge intervening and saying, hey, this person needs to have his firearms taken away from him. His father has told myself and other reporters that he kept questioning his son about why he needed the guns and encouraging him not to own the guns and to get rid of them. Uh, you know, it would have taken some action from the father beyond that, hmm. which he didn't appear to have taken, even given these circumstances. He could have, you know, if maybe if we had a red flag law, he could have potentially gone to some law enforcement official and and made his case about why his son was a threat and his guns should be taken away. But his actions what we know of his actions now don't seem to indicate that is something he would have done, but who knows, maybe he would have. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to a public health professional about the changes he wants to see. There's not a single solution. There's not a single policy. There's not a single way of how we're going to solve this problem. More in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Professor Mark Zimmerman is co-director of the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention at the University of Michigan. He helped us put this week's tragedy into context. Of all firearm deaths in the United States, 
1% are from mass shootings. That means that there's a whole lot others that are happening too. So when we think about these horrific events that make the uh, headlines that feel relatively random and, and often are relatively random, they're particularly distressing, but they do only account for 1%. And firearms are the number one death for uh, children uh, 1 to 24. So, I mean, it, it's, it's epidemic. Um, there's no question about it. Zimmerman and his team have been raising the alarm about gun violence prevention for years. And he's in favor of exploring policy changes. But he says they're not the only solution. Here's his conversation with April Bear. When I present this, uh, these data to a, a, a room full of people and I ask them, what do they think of when they think of firearm injury? Um, they either think about the, the uh, urban violence or they think immediately about mass shootings. And they're surprised to learn that even together, they make up less than the majority of firearm deaths in the United States. And that's a long-winded way of saying that a solution for mass shootings may be quite different than a solution for interpersonal violence in in intimate partner situations or in, uh, let's say, gang or drug-related violence, which may be very different than suicides and the uh, self-harm that may occur with with firearms. So there's not a single solution. There's not a single policy. There's not a single way of how we're going to solve this problem. And frankly, we don't have we haven't done the kind of research that we need to do to really dig in and figure out, well, what are the uh, patterns and, and where are the best ways in the different contexts to to intervene? We have some broad stroke ideas, but we don't have a complete picture because we haven't really been doing research in this area due to uh, federal government uh, did not fund it for a very long time. But they're starting to get into the game. And uh, fortunately, I think we, we will start developing some answers. Obviously, the Institute has been making some headway as the federal restrictions on the research have been lifting. We also know that Michigan's lawmakers are moving on this. The House and the state House and state Senate and the governor's office are all under Democratic control for the first time in, I guess, a political generation. And we knew that gun law was going to be a topic even before this week. Um, if lawmakers asked you, what would you tell them about, I guess, the short to midterm? Well, they very well might ask me, actually. <laughs> you know, again, though, it's I think it's important to know that we're not going to policy our way out of this. Uh, I, I think that's part of the solution. It's not all of the solution. Um, but you know, the, the, the state of Michigan does not have a formal um, what's called a red flag law or ERPO law, which is extreme risk protection. This is particularly important for um, uh, situations for uh, around suicide. And there's actually some evidence that uh, having ERPO laws does reduce uh, suicide by firearm. And that's important because of lethal means. Um, 90% of uh, suicide attempts with a firearm are successful, unfortunately. That isn't true for other means. And what's interesting about that is that once somebody uh, attempts, they end up getting the help they need. And I don't know the exact percentage, but a large percentage, much more than half, of those who receive help at post a suicide attempt do not try again. So if they don't use a very lethal means and we can help them survive, they don't attempt again, that's a big win for the individual, of course, but also for the families in their community. 
but one would be ERPA laws. And it's important for your listeners to know that with red flag laws, a judge makes the decision of whether or not to take away uh, somebody's firearms because they are a harm to themselves or others. So it's not something where you can just call, you know, your your Aunt Mary and have her come and, you know, take the guns away. There's also some research that has also done some evidence about licensure and background checks. And, and when both of those mechanisms are in place, uh, there's some evidence that that's the most effective. With licensure alone or background check alone are not as good as having both of those as policies in this, uh, you know, in a state to reduce um, uh, gun violence. So that that those are other policies that uh, the state can certainly kind of engage in and, and think about. But I, I also want to back up for a second. I mean, yes, there might be a political will because we talked about now there's Democrats in the controlling the House and the and the Senate and the governor's office. But we have to have this not be a Democratic Republican issue. Firearm safety should be something that we all support and we all can get behind. And I do hope that the um, the legislature and the governor works across the aisle and we find solutions that we all can agree on are important to do because um, firearm injury and, uh, and death is not a political issue. It is uh, really a public health issue uh, it's a criminal justice issue. It's a social issue. It's a society issue that we all should be should care about. Yeah. Mark, we're still waiting a great deal of investigating investigation and reporting on what happened in East Lansing and how it happened. That said, does anything strike you about the facts on the ground at MSU? Uh, no, honestly, I, I don't have enough information to really know. I, I can tell you that uh, most mass shooters um, have made a plan to do it. So um, I, I suspect that might be the case here. But I, I, again, I don't know. But by having a plan, you know, rarely does a mass shooter wake up in the morning and say, oh, this is a good day to find a gun or get my gun and start shooting people. There's usually something that's building beforehand. There's some some grievance or some other issue that's been going on ahead of time. And we need to kind of understand what's underlying those things so that we can, A, get people like that the help that they might need so they don't wake up and do this heinous act. We also need to know, well, what are those signs and, and how do we recognize them and how do we help people get the help that they need? versus just arresting them and putting them in prison. Obviously, once the act occurs, uh, a criminalization is, is an obvious um, route, but we have to start thinking about what we have to do to prevent these kind of events. Let's have this conversation in between the events, because unfortunately, I'm sure there will be future ones. Um, but let's have it in between the events and discuss what do we need to do to prevent an event like this ever occurring again? What's the kind of data and information we need, the kind of research we need to do, the kind of program we need to do to um, ideally eliminate uh, these kind of events. I imagine that the people you work with and the people in your immediate family have heard you talking about this and these issues for a long time. But I just wondered this year, is there anyone in your life who is new to thinking about this or to the proximity that that this has 
just brought up for all of us and sort of how you're talking to them about it. It's very interesting to me that still in 2023, people don't always get that somebody in public health would do research on violence and firearm violence in particular. So I still have those conversations with people. They would say, oh, I thought you were a public health researcher. And so they immediately think I'm studying um, diabetes or obesity or um, clean water, which of course are all valid things to study. But uh, for 30 plus years, I've been studying youth violence um, and youth violence prevention. And um I constantly have to kind of remind people that uh, what our former Surgeon General David Satcher said about violence and about gun violence in particular, he said, uh, if it's not a public health issue, how come so many people are dying from it? Mm. So um, it's more educational. Um, I think it's kind of to tell them what I just said, said to you, that it's very much a public health problem and that that there are strategies that we've learned from public health for um for prevention that could be applied here, thinking ecologically, um, thinking in a preventive way, uh, thinking about root causes and what are some of the underlying factors. Uh, I've studied violence um, because some of the underlying factors for violence are related to all sorts of other health outcomes. Uh, And then exposure to violence is related to uh, additional health outcomes. My colleagues and I, for example, have found that People who have been exposed have mental health issues. It it affects uh, educational outcomes. It affects mental health outcomes. Then I just had a conversation with folks about um, how it becomes part of the genome, this exposure of violence and the body's response and how that kind of gets passed down from generation to generation. So I just try to educate people about the connections between uh, human experience, basically, and, and, and our health. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm Laura Weber-Davis, in for April Bear. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Kavansag and Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Music for the show comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.